Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome to FT Science with me, Clive Cookson. This week, we'll be talking about the importance of design in getting advances in science and technology out of the lab and into the market. And we'll be hearing from Science Magazine about a dreadful new plague that threatens to wipe out some bat species in the US. Given the mortality rates that we've observed over the past four years, if those continue, then this population, starting at 6.5 million bats, across all the northeastern U.S., the population would be less than 650 bats in 16 years. Our regular guest, Diana Garnham, who's chief executive of Britain's Science Council, is here as usual. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. My colleague, Andrew Jack, is back from holiday. Great to have you back. How are you? Thanks very much. Very fine. And our special guest this week is David Kester, chief executive of the Design Council since 2003. Welcome, David. Oh, it's great to be here. Perhaps you could tell us first what the Design Council does beyond the obvious promotion of good design. Well, we're really about facilitating innovation, both in business but also within the public sector. So the sort of things that we've been doing most recently is working um, within healthcare. So, for instance, with uh, healthcare-acquired infections, um, one of our projects was, was called Design Bugs Out, where we went to work with frontline staff brought in designers, brought together the manufacturers. The outcome was a whole series of new products and new innovations that can reduce the, the number of healthcare-acquired infections within hospitals. Things like new commodes, uh, an intelligent mattress that tells nurses and porterage staff that a, a mattress is damaged so it gets removed. Smart applications, smart products. So where did the ideas come from? If we take the intelligent mattress, did that come from NHS staff or did it come from people that you brought in? Good design happens when the users are involved. I mean, that's what design's all about. It's about preempting. it's about thinking about the future, but the ideas always come from real people. And in the case of the work that we've been doing, for instance, in healthcare, absolutely, it's from nurses, it's from doctors, it's from patients that the fundamental ideas come. Does the funding for your work come from the public or the private sector? Well, it's actually a mix. So um, as an organisation, we are now over 50% funded from, not from central government, but from a rich mix. Uh, we're very much an enterprise-driven organisation. Does that make you at all vulnerable to the acts that's hanging over all public bodies with the spending review? Well, inevitably, but we like to think that we deliver a very, very good service. We're in huge demand at the moment. Um, we're working with LOCOG on issues to, for the Olympics. We're working uh, very uh, up and down the country with local government, with central government, as well as with about a 1,000 UK firms. W- whatever the outcomes uh, at the moment in central government, uh, there will be a design council here We've been around for 65 years. I think there'll be a design council probably in another 65 years. Can I ask, one of the things that we often hear in the UK that we're very, very poor at the demand pool on science, and I think what you've been describing now is is the user's pool on the science and technology rather than the science and technology saying, well, I've invented this, what can I use it for? 
couldn't that be used much more widely? Um, and should we be training people to actually have expertise in that sort of glue demand pool job? Absolutely. And I think the really important thing is um, designers have specific skills, but actually you can bring the knowledge and the understanding of design actually into the lab itself. Within pure science, I think there's a huge opportunity, and that's an area that we've been probing very, very specifically most recently, what you can do to accelerate research and science, which we're so good at in the UK. So if I'm a university researcher who's come up with a brilliant discovery and I want to commercialise it, I've got no design skills at all, what do I do? Well, you see, the standard route at the moment is that we have what are called technology transfer offices up and down the UK. Now, I think they're actually the sort of Cinderella end of our university landscape, and quite wrongly so, because I think it's an incredibly important area. There's an American model which breaks down the science to market into sort of nine stages. I think it was actually based on original military applications of how to get ideas from NASA out to the market. But what they've tended to find is that the first there are nine stages. The first four tend to reside within our universities. From seven to nine tend to be actually the applications, the development within industry. It's the bit in between that things get sort of they fall into the valley of death, as it were. Um, it's what I call the glue. Yes. And it seems to me that what's very interesting about your work and D&T as it's taught in schools yeah. is that this is actually turning out to be a girl-friendly field. And I wonder whether one of the issues we have is that we don't promote the technology words more strongly enough in science in universities and so we don't think about people who have this understanding about the pull through on technology and the ideas base mm. and they're good networkers which is playing to a certain different strengths i think you can even take them even further downstream into our schools you know you mentioned dnt i think there's been a sense in which design is something that sits with humanities and arts Actually, it sits much more strongly with science, technology, engineering and maths. And actually, the, the more that we can actually create those linkages, uh, the less we'll see that the teaching resides with sort of what you might see as woodwork and so forth, more towards actually the development of our science and technology base, which is actually where design plays to its strengths. Obviously, design's always going to play a role in any sort of product, I guess, that finally makes it to, to the market and is yeah. used. But are, are there any sort of counterfactuals of, you know, really clunky, poorly designed things that somehow, you know, have been imposed and, and are necessary? And do we see some evolution towards more smoothly designed ergonomic um, products? Well, you know, I'd rather focus on perhaps some of the great strengths um, and some of, our, some of the great successes. I mean, if I can just give an example, if I may, of the sort of work that we've been doing in technology transfer and how that sort of applies. Most recently, we worked with Oxford ISIS. Um, in fact, we worked with uh, six different universities up and down the country, 24 research projects um, very, very recently. Now, uh, Oxford ISIS is an absolute leader in technology transfer, one of the, one of the absolute benchmark centres. And one of the research projects was about smart metering. Now, that's a very current issue, and it's something that green technologies, we know we need to be at the forefront of those industries. And here we had a research team that had developed some very, very cute algorithms that could pick up and give you a readout on all of the different electronic items within a home system. Now, that's really helpful because it was doing that by some very, very clever navigation. Now... 
it was very, very difficult to communicate that to investors. That what and, and ultimately, when you go into a research unit, often what you'll see is some bits of wood and um, strange bits and pieces all sort of gaffer taped together. And um, and of course, if you as an investor want to put some money in, what you get back from the engineers is all of their technology, which they're very, very proud of. Now, what the design team actually did going in and very, very quickly was say okay, you need to be able to communicate this smartly. Let's create some prototypes. Let's create some visualizations as well. Uh, and even create a brand narrative for investors. Now, they did that so fast. And actually, in the case of uh, Navitas, which actually is the current company that's taken this forward, in the case of the research um, team, they attracted immediately £900,000 of investment and ultimately £4 million of further funding, venture capital funding. And that's taken the product to market. Uh, very successfully and very unusually Oxford University have also put their own money in which doesn't usually happen um, which is a signal of actually how you apply that tiny little bit of creativity and design early on and you know it really can accelerate the, the ideas to market. Well thanks very much David that is a great example of the way design can radically transform the prospects for a scientific discovery. Now we'll go over to Stuart Wills in Washington for this week's contribution from Science Magazine. Thanks, Clive. In 2006, a mysterious epidemic, white nose syndrome, began causing widespread death in bat populations in the northeastern U.S. Since then, the killer has become much better known. It's a fungus that grows on sensitive exposed tissues of the bats, disrupting their winter hibernation cycle and causing them to burn up crucial fat reserves prematurely. A new paper suggests that the syndrome could be driving an important regional bat population to extinction within the space of two decades. I spoke with the paper's lead author, Winifred Frick, about the study and began by asking where this epidemic had come from. Well, that's a good question. So it first appeared in New York in 2006, the first evidence that we have it here in North America. Now, subsequently, researchers have been collaborating with scientists in Europe, and we've confirmed that the same species of fungus actually occurs on hibernating bats in Europe. But what we don't see in Europe is the mortality caused by the fungus. It's not causing the same kind of problem. So it may have come from Europe through humans visiting caves in in Europe and then coming to North America. We don't know that for sure. It would be premature to state that as a fact, but... That's a plausible hypothesis. Now, I think your work is looking at how this disease is affecting one particular species. That's right? That's correct. Because we had very good data on the long-term demographics, this annual survival and, and the population trends of one of our most common species, the little brown myotis, we just focused on that species because of the availability of the data to really understand what their population trends were like before white nose happened to then look at the impacts that white nose is having on these populations. And so you looked at those data, and in this paper in Science, you're concluding that there is a 99% chance that the little brown bat will become regionally extinct within 16 years. How did you get from those population data to this statement on the probability of regional extinction? This is based off of our population models, and, and I'm the first to admit that you know all models have assumptions, and, and one of the critical ones here 
that is important to point out is that, you know, our model assumes that if the mortality and the spread continue in the way that they have over the past four years. And we use a process called a population viability analysis to look at, okay, well, we know what the demographic rates were, and we had variability around those. We had 16 years of mark recapture data going back into the early 90s to look at annual survival rates before white nose. And then we had the counts from since white nose happened of what the population declines were. So we were able to kind of mesh that information together to then build a simulation to say, okay, given the known variability that's in the system naturally, and given how much mortality is occurring from this disease, if we simulate forward 100 years, what is the chance that these populations will go extinct? And we used sort of a working definition of regional extinction, saying that the populations had to drop below 1% of their starting population size, so 650 bats across all of northeastern U.S. And so basically what the model said was that given the mortality rates that we've observed over the past four years, if those continue, then this population starting at 6.5 million bats across all the northeastern U.S., 99% of the times that you would simulate forward based off of these data, the population would be less than 650 bats in 16 years. And as scientists, we're not fortune tellers. We're not trying to say that this is a foregone conclusion, but this is a demonstration of the seriousness of the mortality. Tell me something to close. What does this extinction actually mean in ecological and economic terms? You know, all animals have an intrinsic value, but bats in particular have a lot of values to human society. They perform a lot of ecosystem services. So an individual bat can eat its own body weight and insects each night. And so there's actual tangible economic benefit to humans for these natural predators of these insects that affect agriculture and and forest industry, as well as they do sometimes eat insects that are important vectors for human diseases. So there is very tangible benefits to bats to human society. And you know, we're basically in the middle of a pretty terrible natural experiment about just how important these animals will be. Frick adds that other models run by her group, in which bat mortality is assumed to lessen over time, reduce the near-term likelihood of extinction, but still point to a high probability of extinction over the next 100 years. She says that these kinds of results underscore the need to learn more about the disease's mechanisms and try to find ways to stop it. For Science Magazine, I'm Stuart Wills. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Stuart, and thanks to AAAS and Science. So, there we have yet another depressing example of an apparently new animal disease, probably spread by human beings. Andrew, what, what do you make of it? You've done quite a lot of reporting on animal diseases and what they do. Yeah, very, very sad story and actually a very topical one since I myself this week am going on a West London nighttime bat walk uh, with the London Bat Society. So I'll be interested to hear more about what they say about the impact. But yeah, I mean, I suppose the thing I was left a bit hungry about was actually the driver of this fungus, you know, and how different was there any sort of human interference or changes to the environment that was actually driving that 
move towards extinction more than perhaps has happened to some bat species in the past. But a reminder for for that and many other animal diseases for all sorts of species, that importance of the interaction between human and animal health and how much more we need to do to really understand the drivers and the interactions and the broader ecosystem impacts, as she was saying. David, here's a great another great example of where science is actually raising awareness for us. Now, we've, we've had this most recently also with bees, and we've seen how actually that awareness, once it's raised, also can translate into local action. And then I was very interested to see recently in the news how now in Paris you're seeing people uh, keeping bees on top of hotels and so forth. The moment that you raise awareness and that science begins to translate what's going on on the ground into actually what the implications are for humankind, actually there are often opportunities. Often that needs guidance. So I, again, I agree with you. It would be great to hear what some of the drivers are and also, very importantly, what some of the implications are. I mean, clearly it was hinted at. This could be quite significant economically. And it could be a very bad time to go for a walk in the woods in the eastern US over the next couple of years. The, the midges and the flies could be terrible without the, the bats to eat them. But again, more research will have to be done on that. Personally, and this is based on no knowledge of white nose fungus and bats at all, I suspect that the bats will turn out to be more resilient um, to this disease than her models show, but that is based purely on optimistic intuition. Anyway, I think that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. So David, Diana and Andrew and Stuart in Washington, thank you all very much for your contributions and thank you for listening. FT Science is now taking a two-week break. We hope you'll join us when the show starts again on August the 31st. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.